Trauma Code to New York City, Trauma Code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Trauma Code on WBAI in New York City. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald uh, here with my lovely co-host. Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Happy Monday, everybody. Happy Memorial Day Monday at that. Uh, The song we were just listening to was uh, Really Love. That's uh, D'Angelo and the Vanguard off their 2014 album, Black Messiah. I can't believe it's been so long. That's an excellent album. It is an excellent album. Uh, And uh, today we have on the air... Dee Watkins, very excited about that, Baltimore author, writer, academic uh, professor Dee Watkins, who's just released the paperback version of Black Boy Smiles, a memoir in moments, and so we're excited to talk to him a little bit more about that. And I'll just give a a quick intro before we invite uh, him on the air. Uh, Dee is a a friend of mine, a friend of the show, uh, a New York Times bestselling author of uh, The B-Side, the Cook-Up, a crack walk memoir. He's a co-author of, uh, with uh, NBA star Carmelo Anthony of his autobiography, Where Tomorrows Aren't Promised, a memoir of survival and hope. Uh, co-author with David Simon on a book, The Wire, a complete visual history. An editor-at-large at Salon.com. Uh, he was a writer on the HBO miniseries, uh, We Own This City. So I, I just realized, I don't know if you're part of the WGA, if you're on that strike. Um, but uh, and he also hosted the show's companion podcast. Uh, he was featured on the HBO documentary The Slow Hustle, and his work has been published in the New York Times, Esquire, uh, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, and many other publications. He's a lecturer at the University of Baltimore, where he earned his MFA in creative writing and a Master of Education degree. Uh, he also has a Master's of Education degree from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, D, are you with us? Can you hear us? I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm laughing because I, f- I forgot all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adia, uh, very generous uh, for you to join us on the air. Uh, I'm a big uh, fan of your work. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember reading I remember reading your 2014 uh, breakout piece uh, in Salon, Too Poor for Pop Culture, which I think was in a lot of people became aware of, of you as an individual, sort of autobiographical piece, but also your writing style. It's hard to believe it's been nine years uh, since then. And I remember I first met you actually just walking down the street with the poet Kondwani Fidel and Devin Allen uh, when I moved back to Baltimore for fellowship. It must have been 2017. Um, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Kondwani later. And Devin Allen is a photographer whose photography was featured in the front of Time magazine after the 2015 Baltimore uprising. Um, and th- after that one conversation, you gave me your phone number. We stayed in contact. I've interviewed you before, but this is the first time I've had you on with the New York audience. Uh, and I think people who are listening to that introduction have maybe some sense f- just from the titles of the of, of your work, um, a little bit about where you come from. And your most recent book, as we mentioned, is called Black Boy Smile, A Memoir in Moments. Um, but uh, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself uh, to listeners here in New York who maybe uh, either haven't read you before or only vaguely aware of your work. Um, in just a couple of sentences, who are you and how'd you get here? 
Um, th- thank you, thank you both for the for the kind introductions. Um, at this moment, I'm I'm just a dad, like just trying to figure out, just trying to figure out how to give my daughter a, a better experience than than what I what I had. Um, so far, I think I'm winning because you know when I was a kid, I didn't have any books. She has like 300. Awesome, <laughs> so, awesome. So I'm doing, I'm doing, I feel like I'm doing, I'm doing something right. But, um, I'm just, just a regular guy from East Baltimore. I just try to take everything one day at a time and, um, try my best to, 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 to be positive in negative times while, um, holding a mirror up through society with my work. Mm. Um, you know, um, when, when we talk about, when we talk about that black experience or when we talk about diversity or when we talk about fairness and all of these different things, um, if it's real and, and it's beautiful, I, I try my best to uplift and champion it. And, um, when it's phony, I poke and make fun of it instead of tearing people down. I don't, I don't really tear people down as much as I did in my old job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on my new job, I just, you know, I, I, I try to bring change through, um, through art and, and through fun and through um, finding the many things that connect us, even though we all come from different walks of lives. Wow. And, you know, I'm realizing that your your new book is at least a third of yours with memoir in the title, although one of them was Carmelo Anthony's memoir that you wrote with him. Um, in the B-side, which was a collection of, of kind of essays, also had a lot of autobiographical content. Um, and, you know, uh, The Cook-Up, A Crack-Walk Memoir, was really a compelling read that, as I recall, focused on kind of your high school, uh, ending high school, getting into kind of the drug game at the same time, going to college, and then finding your way to um, to being, uh, you know, a successful writer and an author. Um, and, you know, Black Boy Smile... Uh, focuses a little bit more on your childhood and then a little bit more on that end story. So um, I guess, first of all, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what is it that, you know, you hope to say with Black Boy Smile that you hadn't um, said in your previous autobiographical work? Nobody's tough. Nobody's nobody's 100% tough. I mean, we're we're tough and we're, we're resilient in different ways, but we all experience fear. We all feel inadequate at times. Um, we all go through things that make us question who we are and what we're about. And it's totally okay to be human. It's okay to reflect. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to learn from those mistakes and try to share what you learn with the people who you love so that they don't do the same. All of these things are, are, are natural and, and, and full of love and, and okay. And I think, um, Coming off the cook-up, I was doing a lot of visits in schools and a lot of visits in jails, and people who were in those schools and jails who read the book were like, you're Teflon, you're bulletproof, nothing can can hurt you. And I'm like, no, somebody actually shot me, and the bullet went through me, so I'm actually not bulletproof. (laughs) It's not not true. I feel sad and I've had my heart broken and I've cried like any other person in the world. Um, And when we, when we cling to these false resiliencies and and we bully and, and, and and we abide by these, these rules that are just impossible to, to live up to, we're not having a good experience here. And even worse, we're making, we're potentially giving other people a bad experience as well. And I felt like, as much as I love that book and, and what was accomplished when I wrote that book, I felt like um, some people didn't really get that, that the purpose of that book was to show the false, the false joy and praise that we give um, to the American drug dealer, um, how it's really painful and most drug dealers are broke and it's not glamorous and flashy and deserves 70,000 different television series based on the topic. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a painful industry surrounded by pain, drenched in trauma and that trauma touches and spreads to everyone. And that was the purpose of that book. The purpose of, of black boy smile was to just um, kind of debunk that super predator narrative um, from inside the community and then outside the community as well. Because, you know, again, um, 
being vulnerable is a superpower. Crying um, is a sign of strength. Um, these are things that we need to teach uh, young men, young people, but especially young men in this country to grow up um, and taught that they have to subscribe to these, these hyper-masculine thoughts and actions and ideas because it's not a real thing. I appreciate you saying that, D. I feel like um, even based on the, the, the parallels that you're kind of drawing upon right now between the two books, you're saying that Black Moist Bile comes from a little bit of an emotionally, maybe a, a more emotionally intelligent place, a more mindful place, like you're kind of being cognizant of all the feelings that came, like you're saying, <laughs> we're not rich, we're broke, um, you know, we're still trying to figure things out, but we should be able to cry and that should be okay. And and when we started this interview with you, the first thing you're just like, I'm I'm a dad. And it seems that that's where your black boy smile came from, right? It, it, it kind of seems that the family really helps you find yourself. I mean, I think in one of the sentences you say, like, I found my freedom here, you know, so it kind of cracked that kind of very tough exterior, that encasement that might be ascribed to people who kind of are living fast. Would you say that that's about true or right? Yeah, a- absolutely. You're, you're right on mark. You made me, you made me think of something. Um, so there's a story I tell in the cook-up, and then I retell the same story in Black Boy Smile intentionally mm-hmm. because when I wrote the cook-up, I'm not sure, but I, I probably was still carrying a gun sometimes. Um, you know, now I, I carry, like, smoothies and, like... <laughs> you know like you know like um american girl dolls and stuff like that so it's like i'm in a completely different emotional space something that i thought was was strong and resilient back when i wrote the cut it's a story where a kid bullied me and i um you know i i hit him over the head um and it was it was a testament to my my ability to overcome a difficult situation when i wrote the cook up but in black boy smile I tell the same story, but instead of uh, championing the part where I, I you know, I, I got my lick back, I talked about how I felt. It didn't make me feel good. My feelings were still hurt. It didn't solve the problem. Um, um, the guy who I hit actually was ended up being murdered. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really know how to process that murder. I was kind of taught to um, lean on on the reason why he was murdered instead of, you know, understanding that he was a part of my life for a long time. And I'm extremely hurt that that happened to him, even though we weren't seeing eye to eye when it actually happened. So like, I'm in a whole different place than I was when I, when I, when I wrote that first book, I'm, I see the world in a completely different way now. And that emotional intelligence is something that, um, that we should try to enhance as much as we get, you know, while we're here. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. This conversation is helping me see the book in new light um, and appreciating how important that perspective as a father is for you, I guess, to, to reinterpret um, your youth. And as you mentioned, the, the, the preamble of the book is, is the lie, right? The lie that, um, that, that someone has no fear of the violence going on around them, uh, that a person, you know, in the drug game or anything else. Well, understanding this book is written from your perspective as a father, you do write about your own father, but also you said you had a second father, right? The father of the streets. My dad had limited resources. He was very, very young, um, a very, very socially advanced person, but didn't know anything about being a father when I came into this world. And he made a whole lot of attempts to be the best father that he could be but at the same time I still had to go outside so whatever my dad did in the effort to to try to raise me to be the best guy I could be um, he still had to go up against the streets because if you you think about it as a kid you're spending like um, a huge part of your day in school and then um my dad used to, you know, he, he ran the streets, too, and he would work nights. So I might see him a couple of hours at the school, and then after that, I'm outside. So I'm really on my block around people that's that's from my block more than I'm actually in my home and around my parents. So the neighborhood, um, the streets had the same size, um, same kind of impact and the same kind of influence on me 
as my own family who were from the streets too. And, and then it, and, and then it, it gave me opportunity to pull back when I got older and say, wow, you know, these are, these were your collection of influences. It wasn't, it wasn't just one thing. Yeah. So that being said, I mean, in, in that statement alone, you're kind of pointing out how much, um, well, I guess back when we were growing up, we we're talking about like the eighties, the nineties, uh, the village was still a thing. And we recently had an author on about kind of about parenting, uh, Jess Gross. And we were talking about whether or not the village really still exists, but for sure back in those days it did. And you're, you're pointing out that, um, how, uh, I guess formative that environment even was for you and, and who you became and what you did and actually kind of learning to tell not for nothing but kind of learning to tell the lie that kind of that tough exterior is what you see it's taught it's it's um encouraged <laughs> vulnerability is not so encouraged and so that that it's a little bit the, the product of the environment a little bit um but that being said you you do speak about your own dad and he seems a little bit like a, a hero in the book like he seems like somebody that you Feel like, or actually, the the whole community kind of looks at looks to him in a way of like you know some some insight, definitely a laugh, a good time, but also w- for some wisdom as well. Um, so that being that, you did dedicate the book to your daughter, despite the fact that you know Black Boy Smile is a collection of you know kind of traumatic stories, but a very hopeful ending. Um, but with a history of intergenerational trauma in your own family, in your community, you seem to want to create a future of intergenerational health and, and wealth for your people, right? So what do you want to communicate to a community like Baltimore whose families share history and share future? So the main thing I want to say is uh, what, I was, what I was really trying to communicate um, through the book and what makes it into a lot of my language is that it's okay for us to say that we're doing it wrong. It's okay to say that we have these intentions and our intentions are good, but the desired result is not actually happening. Um, There's so much going on inside these communities. There's so much going on inside the homes. There's so much that needs to be said that's not being said. And just historically, as, as a tradition, we're bottled up. And we're taught to just keep things in and to not talk about certain things. We just let them build inside of us until they turn into disease or whatever. But we just we don't say them. Um, And and the book is the book is about how problematic that is Mm -hmm. on top of, of, of this idea of how we all deserve a happy ending and. And how we can achieve that as 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 a collective, and I, you know, it's not a step by step guide to what that means because it's something different from from everybody. But um, the main ingredient is just the ability to self audit and think about um, what hurts you, and, and in combination to how the way you talk and move and think hurt other people. Um, my wife is brilliant, and um, you know, um, and, you know, one thing about her, she's the kind of communicator where she has to get her point across. And, uh, you know, it, it, she has to cut you off uh, 17,000 times during every conversation. That's how she communicates. Now, I'm, I cut people off, too, so I can take it, whereas there's another person who, you know, who might not be able to take that they might feel like they're not being hurt so she might be hurting them and not even know that she's hurting them because um she's so used to talking to people like me and we just yell over top of each other and we just you know until until it turns into a laugh fest but somebody else might be like wow i can't even get my point out because you keep cutting me off um so she might be hurting somebody without trying to hurt somebody and it's just you know i mean that's a small thing but there's like bigger things too and I, and I just, I, I feel like we're not talking enough, we're not sharing enough, and then we're not considering how we make people feel enough. Everybody's about self-care and team of, you know, self-care and what do I need in my life and my wants and my desires. And, you know, even sometimes in the pursuit of that, you could potentially be silencing or hurting a person. And that's something to think about as well. Well, uh, and uh, if you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Trauma Code on WBAI, and we have on the air uh, Dee Watkins, a New York Times bestselling author's most recent book, uh, Black Boy Smile, a Memoir in Moments. Um, and, you know, 
the show is called Trauma Code, and we've talked about a lot of trauma in your life and in the book. And just in this short conversation, we've talked about, I think, two people getting shot. Um, and, you know, there, there's a, another story in the book, uh, but I think it was a cousin of yours named Don Don, who is uh, someone you really looked up to and admired and was a great person. And because of some, you know, basically, you know, capricious, angry decision by someone armed with a firearm, uh, his life was cut short. And when, after I read that chapter, I think I read it about the time when there was three stories that came out uh, at the same time nationally about people getting uh, shot at or murdered for really trivial mistakes, right? Knocking on the wrong door, turning into the wrong driveway, opening the wrong car door, um, and that resulting in the use of deadly violence. And I, I'm kind of realizing, right, that, you know, people of a certain age, especially in black Baltimore neighborhoods like East and West Baltimore, have had to survive a lot of deadly violence, particularly gun violence, to get to the age, you know, that you or I are now. Um, but that deadly violence is not isolated to places like uh, East Baltimore, right? It's a national phenomenon. And, and I, I wondered if you had any kind of words or thoughts as a nation seeing this kind of uh, how violence can just erupt for no good reason and cut a life short, someone who's seen and survived that kind of violence. Um, any thoughts to people nationally who are just realizing how close to their own life all that violence really is? Yeah, I, I hope and pray that people are starting to see that that gun violence isn't it's not an inner city problem. Um, it, it's an American problem. This country has a problem with, with firearms and has proven as a collective that we aren't responsible enough to own them. You know, if another person goes inside another school, another movie theater, another synagogue, another um, festival, and, and does this, and, and you know, and, and and it gets coverage for like a few days, a week maybe, and then it disappears until that person goes to ch trial, and then they call that person a lone wolf with a manifesto or some whatever BS they use to try to justify the situation on top of a bunch of ridiculous, silly, um, stupid politicians who just make up excuses. Um, this is the reason why we need even more guns. It's a problem. It's a problem. And I just don't understand why people in power, um, the policymakers, uh, it's time to challenge the Second Amendment because what we have going on now is not working. Children are dying and people are acting like it just didn't happen because it wasn't their child. And it's sad. Like where I grew up at, I said this before, I'll say it again. It's easier to get a gun than it is to get a clean pair of sneakers or a job. It's easier to get a pistol. It's so easy to get a pistol. Like, so too easy to get a pistol. And, it, it, you know, and it, 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 it's extremely sad and it, it doesn't make any sense. And I, I don't understand how we can see so much pain, so much violence, you know, survivors, people in wheelchairs, people who are brain dead, people who had bullets rip through their flesh and know what that pain feels like. I don't understand as a collective why we can't, why we can't do something about it and to do something about it is something that most people aren't going to want to hear, but we, it's, it's time, it's time to abolish firearms. Wow. It doesn't work. And it's just, it does, they don't work. And you know, uh, for people who are listening, uh, I think the next show we're going to have on, if not the next one, the one after is going to be with, uh, uh, Hopkins trauma surgeon, Joe Sacron, who was shot as a child and now, does a lot of work in legislative and advocacy fields exactly towards what you're talking about, um, sensible firearm policy to, to decrease the amount of firearm injuries. So definitely uh, on the trauma code that we're definitely uh, on board with everything um, that you just said. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned specifically, I mean, along these same lines, is about rethinking the, the Second Amendment. And I think that uh, the more that we try to erase access to our history, uh, the the greater the risk is of kind of suffering the the consequences of not knowing that history. Um, in Black Boy Smile, you discuss the authors and books that were really formative, maybe even uh, transformative in your journey. You name Frederick Douglass, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, authors whose books provide much insight about the black experience in America, uh, that of the ancestors, as well as providing some context for the present day systemic inequalities. Uh, those authors and their books 
kind of helped you, it sounds like, kind of helped you recognize and hone your own talents. And, and those same authors' books are actively being banned in various states throughout the country, including by you know, U.S. presidential hopefuls, uh, in hopes of eliminating critical race theory and, and inclusive history. So I'm, I'm asking you, Dee Watkins, as an academic professor, writer, um, and somebody with lived experience of the benefits of these books, what are your thoughts on the active kind of censoring of history in this country? It's a big question, I know. I, I, <laughs> No, I think, I mean, I, I think, I, I, you know, I think the people who are trying to ban books are, are really stupid. Like, I think they're, they're really stupid. These are people who are stupid at the highest level. These are very, very bad people. They're, they're dumb. They say dumb things. Um, they follow other dumb people who say dumb things. And sadly, there's a, a certain amount of people that follow them. What I, what I feel like, and this is, my perspective is very different because, these books they weren't they weren't legally banned from me, but the whole idea of the transformative power of reading was banned from me. Mm-hmm. So the books were right in front of my face, and I was kind of you know growing up, and I was kind of taught that they there was nothing out there for me, nothing to teach me or, or guide me in these ways. In the school system, there was no such thing as um, inclusion and and giving literature where we can be represented and see ourselves that that was you know that was that wasn't a, that wasn't a thing when i was going to school back in the 90s and all that this is like something brand new so um culturally and historically they were they were banned and when i discovered them it was almost like i, I found the keys to the vault because reading someone like james baldwin and, and, and someone like tony morrison uh, um even reading the beat poets um you know i've learned that i wasn't I, I wasn't alone and I weren't, I learned that there's people from different experiences, different time periods, different walks of life that had so much to teach me that would help me on my journey because they made some of the mistakes I've made, but then they kept me, they prohibited me from making some of the mistakes that I would have made had I not been fortunate enough to discover their writings. So, um, you know, um, just the idea of banning a book is just, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Like it's a, it's almost like unbelievable. Um, but I, I, I do have faith um, in educators and, and, and thought leaders and, and people with strong community connections to make sure that the literature is available for the people that want it. Um, it's, it's just another hurdle that we shouldn't have to to <laughs> to jump over. But that is is has been what this black American experience is. It's right. always so as soon as you think you beat something, they're coming out with something new. Here come the crown bill. As soon as you you know you you know you beat you know you're trying to fight your civil rights, and it's like uh oh, let's just deindustrialize, fire all the black people, and introduce crack. Like it's always something that we gotta jump over. But you know we we still here. I appreciate that you say that. Um, although you know people are trying to legally ban things, you're saying that culturally some things might have just been inaccessible to you, or kind of like made a little bit obscure. Um, that's one of the things that I appreciate about your writing is that you're, you're telling very compelling stories um, about, I mean, can I say a kind of a hard or difficult, at least complex life. Um, but you're teaching through those stories. You know what I mean? I think you're offering a lot of perspective to people who kind of live a similar life and offering insight to those who don't and who don't understand it. So that's uh, one of my favorite things about, about this particular book, Black Boy Smile. And and, and I wanted to say, you know, we just t- talked about all these books, and one that we didn't mention that I think you said was, um, or one author who was very instrumental into pulling you in to books as something that was relevant to your life was also Sister Soldier. And I think there's a part in the book where you just like, you just have fun listing all the authors or many authors that were influential. And I have to say, I really enjoyed that part because one, you know, it, it, it you mentioned people like Sister Soldier that culturally were very um, relevant to who you were in that moment, but also influences that I wouldn't have guessed, like you mentioned the beat poets. Um, and, and I just thought it was really fun to get led into your library a little bit um, and see how, how diverse that was. And, and um, I guess challenge the reader to open themselves up to, uh, to to books and authors and influences that are not what might be stereotypical for the background that the reader comes from. Now, and that's, that's the beauty of language. Um the beauty of, 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 of just being a reader. Um, I, I don't know. 
I don't even know um, who my biggest inspirations are now because I read so much and I just, you know, I, I get this, this beautiful opportunity to just like tap into all of these different worlds and these different realities. Like I, I just finished reading that LeBron book, but before that I read, um, stay true um that touched on that 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 asian american experience um living in the bay area and like before that i read lessons in chemistry um and before that i had read um i, I list all of these things down i write i got a whole running list of my um of what i what i'm what i'm working on or what i'm reading in my book but you know i feel like a lot of people read harlem shuffle um, um i read seven days in june i read sweetness that walter payton book um, I finished that Cheryl Stray book while after I read um, Tiny Beautiful Things, um, you know. Um, but you know, I you know it's um, Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott. Like I, you know, I'm now you flexing. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I go, I go into the, I get to go into these, I get to go into these spaces, and I get to spend time with these people and these characters, and I get to take a piece of their journey with me, and I get to share that, and I'm just, I'm just forever thankful. And I guess that that's the other black boy smile before you found your your wife and your daughter was these books that brought you into these many worlds, um, and that's why I want uh, our listeners, you know, that I think the way you write about your trauma is uh, that you experience that your community experience is very compelling, um, but I definitely don't want people to think that's the limits of your abilities and you know your writing style uh, is very fun to read, um, and I think you're a voracious reader and that and that shows. Um, and you talked a little bit about how you uh, spent a lot of time and energy and I guess probably money also making sure you and your books get into um, schools of all different kind of backgrounds and, and even jails where young people find themselves um, to invite people into that world of reading. Um, and, and I guess what that starts to show uh, is not only that interest in reading, but also um, what I think the other thing I really admire about uh, you and your work is how you value mentorship and how you bring that to, um, you know, people coming up behind you. You talk about lifting as you climb. Um, anything else you want to talk about your mentorship philosophy before we talk about one of your mentees that I want to share with the New York audience? Um, yeah, Maya Angelou said, when you can give, when you learn, teach. You know, we're, we're, we're responsible for... Um, we're responsible for, for for making sure we're, we're building a, a real foundation of, of creatives. Um, a lot of people talk about it, but, um, you know, when you look at that body of work, if you can't even connect to any, any, any of the people who got the opportunity to study other them, then it's like, are you, are you really doing your job? And that's, you know, that's something really important for me. I don't, I don't put that on other people, but it's it's been something that has really been really important for me. And uh, and I want to share with the audience. Um, and for I hope my my the New York Yankee fan listeners will forgive us a little bit. I know we talk a lot about Baltimore today. Um, I'll allow it. <laughs> but the, the the Baltimore Orioles uh, presumably paid, but definitely um, got uh, Kondwani Fidel, a mutual friend, your mentee. Uh, a poet from Baltimore who recently threw out the first pitch at the Baltimore City Connect um, game for the Orioles to to do a poem that I think of as a commercial for the Orioles uh, called uh, You Can't Clip These Wings. Uh, Reggie, why don't we cue that up for our audience? When the wells have almost run dry, in the hard times dark in the sky, there's a mantra we live by. You can't clip these wings. It's exciting, knowing that Baltimore holds the center of the national stage with spectators not knowing whether to laugh or weep. This is where the yin and yang meet, where the yin and yang feast. What more can I say? This little city near the bay controls your oceans of emotions, invading your brain cells, and we just minding our business. We just ride it. We just bip it. We just drag it. Rarely acknowledging y'all existence, look in the mirror. Y'all be tripping. You see, this is what it means to wear Baltimore on your chest. This is what it means to love Baltimore in the flesh. Do you know what it means to utilize your muscles to hustle for Baltimore? You know we bring out the best. Mathematics can scan the true length of our wingspan. I'ma say that till my mouth is dry, you can't clip these wings.
and our imperfections is where the light seeps through. The colors that comprises us reminds us is Baltimore versus the world. It's going to take a lot more than chatter to divide us. From Sandtown, North and Pete, Park Heights, RNG, to Patterson Park, Fed Hill, where we can't forget down the hill, no matter if it's north, east, south, or west, from corner to corner. It's difference that exists. Yes, it's troubled waters depending on where you fish. We be brazen in the sun, Baltimore. We leave nothing on a plate, eating through the bone marrow, the gristle. Do you know what it means to wear Baltimore on your chest? To love Baltimore in the flesh? Do you know what it means to roll up your sleeve, to hang your hat on the head of the city? Even though sometimes Baltimore is a wire jaw, we still smile. But our chest held high. You can't clip these wings forever. We are here. Wow. Uh, I have to say, I'm just so blown away that the Baltimore Orioles, I don't know who over there uh, knows what's going on in the city, um, but um, for people who are listening, there was several seconds where the poetry stopped, and there's an accompanying video, and Dee, you probably know this, but the image that's on the screen during that silence is a mural of Freddie Gray in West Baltimore. That song contains a moment of silence for Freddie Gray. Um, And... and, uh, uh, Students of history might know that, you know, that, that 2015 um, kind of violence and uprising and conflict in Baltimore after the death of, the, of Freddie Gray, there was a crux of that conflict that happened out in front of the baseball stadium. Um, people tell me now that it was actually Boston Red Sox fans um, started yeah, it was. started throwing. Say the two uh, <laughs> Orioles fans. Uh, but, but that started to, you know, a protest about the death of Freddie Gray came by the stadium and, and people who were drinking out in front um, started arguing and fighting and pushing um, the protesters. Um, so yeah, I, I was I was down there. I was down there, man. We were walking down. The, we were literally walking down the street, and I was I wasn't even there as a protester. I was there as a journalist, and I'm I'm from Baltimore. I live in Baltimore, but it's like I never been to, to no protest or nothing like that. So like I'm just following the neighborhood. There's no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. And the Red Sox fans are like, "If you shut up, boo!" And they were like, they were like contained behind the gate and they broke in through the gate and mixed in with the protesters man i had to knock i had to knock the Sox fans out man because he called me the n-word like and i'm like damn and then it's like and you know and i'm looking around like yo wait did anybody see me because i had like a thousand words due that night so like you know i was you couldn't trying to spend it in story, but I mean, slinging, they slinging beer and, you know, and I'm like, yo, what's, what's happening? Um, so, the, but no, an- no, it's the, the Angelos, the Angelos with Kondwani and, um, and they chose to, um, to let him be the guy, um, that forced to connect the, 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 the Oreos with some of Baltimore's most vulnerable residents. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is a beautiful video. It's a beautiful piece of art. And I, I think, um, you know, a rare moment. I went down to the game when they released the jerseys the other night, and the unity between every part of the city. Um, you know, O's fans are also like in the surrounding counties. Right. So, just the unity between all of these different people who never meet and talk or touch was just such it was a beautiful thing. It was very special. And it wasn't that long ago that one of your co-authors, um, David Simon, I don't remember if it was an interview or a written piece, was talking about how Orioles and baseball had really lost touch with, I think he was talking about West Baltimore in particular, but I think Black Baltimore largely. Um, so I think, you know, kudos, I think John Angelos, the son of Peter, uh, has been a little bit better at, at paying attention to what's going on and connecting to the city. Um Absolutely. So, so yeah, I just wanted to, to, to shine some light on one of your mentees who I think, like you said, did a fantastic piece of art and I think a culturally and historically um, important in the world of sports and sports in Baltimore. Um, Absolutely. I'm so, so proud of him. Um, I, I, I couldn't be more proud. Definitely. And, and the other um, piece of, I guess, kind of sports journalism that I just wanted to give you a moment to talk about was your recent – um, Hello. You still got us? Was your uh, recent book with uh, Carmelo Anthony? Um, who hey, I think I might have left you, lost you guys on a volume a little. Uh, he doesn't hear us, Reggie. Um, you, you still got us, D? 
I can hear you, but barely. Okay, I'll try to speak up. Um, I wanted to, to shine some light also on your recent uh, book with Carmelo Anthony, uh, who is uh, a son of the Red Hook uh, Projects uh, in Brooklyn, also a, a New York Knicks, so a lot of fans here, but also someone who went to school, went to high school in Baltimore. Um, and he just announced his retirement uh, earlier this month. Anything else you want to say about uh, working with, with Carmelo and, and, and that book you wrote with him? Yeah, I think people don't necessarily give uh, Carmelo the credit for uh, just the the amount of community work that he does, um, that that he did, the the amount of love that he just showed to so, to so many different to so many different people. And you know, I think um, he was always a great example for just um, younger basketball players trying to adjust to NBA life. Um, to just being the person who just put his money where his mouth is, you know, he doesn't, he didn't speak a lot about being an activist and pushing for change, but you'll see him in the community. You'll see him building rec centers. You'll see him, you know, he built that beautiful basketball court in Puerto Rico. He did the same thing in Syracuse. And he's just a guy who just, who just shows, who just have been showing love throughout his long 20 year career. And, um, you know, I, I, I was happy to be a small part of that and to help him tell part of his personal story because, um, People, you know, a lot of people used to look at Carmelo like, yo, he's a, you know, he's a, like. We still got you, D, or we lose you? Well, I I, I think we might have uh, just lost our guest, D. Watkins. Um, we were almost towards the end. I think that was the last question I was going to ask. Um, but unfortunately, we missed a little bit of that history he was going to tell with uh, Carmelo Anthony. Um but why don't we um, take a little uh, musical break? Um, we have on uh, next, I think, a song of uh, Bill Lee, Spike Lee's father, who also recently passed away. Welcome back to Trauma Code on WBAI in New York City. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald with my lovely co-host. Dr. Cassandra Raphael, happy Monday, everybody. And uh, we, if you were listening, we just had on the air uh, the uh, author, uh, dare I say the brilliant author, D. Watkins from Baltimore. He just uh, released an uh, in-paperback version of uh, his book, Black Boy Smile, a memoir in moments. Uh, he can also be found online, salon.com, where he does a regular kind of cultural um, piece for their publication uh, and that song that we just listened to uh, was uh, f uh, from uh, Spike Lee's father Bill Lee who just recently passed away um, and that song was uh, We Love Roll Call I think that was from the, uh, uh, Do, the right thing. Do the Right Thing soundtrack thank you I, for a moment I was about to conflate some Spike Lee movies um, and uh, you know there are the other uh, recent um, uh important death was right the passing of tina turner um, right nay anime bullock so yeah tina turner passed away last wednesday may 24th at the age of 83 um american born swiss uh national um known as the queen of rock and roll 
Uh, we, we lost her. My goodness, I've been seeing so many reels on social media of of uh, Tina Turner performing, uh, even back in the days, uh, even almost especially back in the days uh, of Ike and Tina. Tina Turner was working on that stage. My goodness, like when you see like for me, I mean, I'm, I'm a Beyonce fan, right? So when I see Tina Turner doing that work on the stage, I feel like that's the tone that that was being set. Um, and there was even a clip that I saw of Tina Turner and Beyonce performing together. I'm not even sure what award show that might have been BET, but I don't want to misspeak that. Um, this woman has been putting in work for years, definitely overcome adversity, had a very, you know, as we know, difficult relationship, but then ultimately found, I guess probably who she believes is her soulmate in the in the very end. And she found her, like she she moved to Europe and adopted a Swiss, Swiss nationality and found that, you know, folks out there love her music, that she was like a huge, huge superstar. She was here for us, but, you know, almost even more so it seems like for, for them out there. And she really rode that out and a phenomenal woman, uh, Tina Turner. Uh, and, and at the end of the show, we're going to close out with the song of hers as well. Uh, and, you know, Dee had a lot of recommendations for us. Uh, I definitely would recommend uh, picking up uh, his uh, books. Any three of them that have the word memoir in them are definitely worth the read. Uh, Cook Up a Crackwalk Memoir that was one of his first breakout um, books. His most recent one, Black Boy Smile, a memoir in moments, is sort of him looking back as a father now and having a different perspective and appreciating different moments in his life for their value, as well as uh, we mentioned the book that he co-wrote uh, with the just-retired uh, New York Nick, Carmelo Anthony, uh, called... Um, uh, I don't have it in front of me now. Um, uh, Which Mars aren't promised? That's right. Uh, memoir of survival and hope. Thank you for rescuing me there. Um, but got I did it. want want to make one more recommendation. Uh, we got to see an excellent performance at uh, the BAM, yeah. the Brooklyn Academy of Music, right down the street from our downtown Brooklyn studio. Uh, the Dance Africa performance, uh, the first one this year, right since uh, since, since before the, yeah I since think. before the pandemic. Um, uh, happens every Memorial Day weekend. Well, okay, but not for the past several because of because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. However, before that, um, every Memorial Day weekend, Dance Africa, the the entire vibe like they they're giving workshops and lessons in dance and music, and um, they have this this excellent bazaar going on on several streets in downtown Brooklyn, uh, where they're selling beautiful art and. Um, Actually, all different kinds of things. Shea butter, if you like that. <laughs> Musical instruments, etc. And uh, I used to, even last year, I took my kids. There was no performance, but, you know, just to kind of see the bazaar and, and tinker with some instruments and learn something new about African history. And that was really wonderful. So highly recommend that. I mean, I think the last performance of the Dance Africa show is in 10 minutes. Uh, but and that features- the bazaar goes on for uh, until at least 8 p.m. tonight. And that features the um, the uh, National Dance Theater of Ghana, uh, as well as some other uh, dance troupes. So definitely, if you're in downtown Brooklyn trying to figure out what you're going to do at 3 o'clock, make your way on over to Brooklyn Academy of Music. Check it out. Otherwise, you can, I think it's on Fulton, uh, uh, just uh, at the corner of Flatbush, right there in front of the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Check out the bazaar uh, in the streets. Uh, oh, actually, also, um, speaking of BAM, I think in the... Early weekends of June, they're going to have the Alvinelli Company come in and perform there as well. So I, I certainly plan to be in that audience, uh, lovers of dance and people who just wanting to learn something new, see something new. I would highly recommend seeing Alvinelli. I've seen them before, but it'll be my first time seeing them at BAM. I'm very excited about that. So that's also going on there. Excellent programming from BAM these days. And I think that's gonna gonna wrap it up for us on uh, the trauma code. Uh, but remember, you know, we volunteer our time because we love doing this, but we still got to pay the bills here at WBAI. Uh, and uh, the only way to continue this important history uh, is to pay for the receiver, or rather the transmitter, for example. Uh, so definitely that pledge line to pledge your support: two one two two zero nine two nine five zero two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. Uh, or you can go online at the donation button on WBAI.org or give to WBAI.org. And if you want to find us, uh, 
on the internet. Uh, at, we are Trauma Code WBAI is our handle on uh, Twitter and Instagram, and Trauma Code WBAI at gmail.com. You can also find all of our archives on the WBAI Radio Archives uh, website online, uh, or just search Trauma Code wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Well, I guess we're going to close out with uh, Tina Turner, What's Love Got to Do With It? And um, oftentimes we choose music that really reflects kind of the theme of the show. Uh, today we did a lot of music about uh, love. It's all love. It's all love. So we'll <laughs> close out with Tina Turner, What's Love Got to Do With It? Thanks, New York.